In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. But God continued to be faithful. Hey, good morning, everyone. Uh, nice to have you join us this morning. Hey, my name is Lyndon. If we haven't met um, before, I'm, I'm one of the pastors here at the chapel. A big happy Father's Day to all the uh, fathers and grandfathers and uncles and brothers and, uh, and, and everyone uh, out there. I hope you're having a wonderful morning. I've got, uh, I think, two generations of fathers that are, are streamed in this morning. So a special happy Father's Day to my granddad and my dad as well. Hope you guys uh, have, a, have a really good day. But, um, you know, there's something else exciting happening this morning other than Father's Day. Uh, we're kicking off a brand new series uh, in the book of Judges. And, you know, equally exciting. Father's Day, new sermon series. I don't know. Um, but we are uh, beginning a nine-week series in the book of Judges. And this is going to be a great series as we go through this really interesting book of the Bible. Uh, it's pretty gruesome. It's very action-packed. There's sort of love story in there as well. There's a lot going on. It's got Samson and Gideon, uh, Deborah, a lot of these characters in the Bible that we uh, know of. And so we're going to be spending nine weeks looking uh, at the book of Judges. And this morning what we're going to do is we're going to spend a little bit of time just introducing the book uh, working out where it is in the Bible, roughly uh, what, what, what's going on in the context. And then we're going to spend a little bit of time looking just at chapter 1 uh, as, as we look at the openings of this book. And I'm going to pull out two themes in the book of Judges that we uh, are going to have a look at to see how it relates to our life. Um, but why don't we begin this morning by praying and um, dedicating our time now to the Lord, hey? Father, we thank you so much for the privilege that it is that we can call you our dad. We thank you that uh, you, almighty, powerful God, who, who created the entire universe with just your words, um, that we can come before you confidently as your sons and daughters. Father, we thank you for uh, today and, and Father's Day as we celebrate fathers and, and the men in our life. and. Um, I thank you so much that we have got a perfect Father in you. And no matter what our earthly experience has been like with uh, our, our Father, we can know that you are our loving, gentle, caring Father who desires to protect us, to keep us close to himself and to walk life with us. And so we just praise you this morning and we just, we are just, we just have hearts of, of, uh, of thanks for you. Father, as we look into uh, this really um, interesting book in the Bible, I pray that you would give us wisdom as we think through these things, that you would give me clarity as I speak, faithfulness to your word. Um, help us to have open hearts to hear what you would have to say to us. And I pray for, um, yeah, just good attention and focus and that we would bring all glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the book of Judges, eh? Judges is uh, in the Old Testament. Um, so you've got the New Testament, you've got the Old Testament, and Judges um, is in the Old. And <clears throat> the book of Judges looks at events in Israel's history that happened about three and a half thousand years ago. 
Um, we don't really know who the author of Judges is. Um, most people think it's probably Samuel. But Judges is set in, in a land uh, called Canaan, which was Israel's promised land uh, that was promised to Abraham. And, and in this land of Canaan lived a, a group of people called the Canaanites. And so as we spend this nine weeks looking through Judges, we're going to hear a lot about Canaan. We're going to hear a lot about the Canaanites. Um, and so this morning, as we kind of introduce this book, it's important that we understand a little bit about who the Canaanites are and, and the history of the land of Canaan. But I want to really encourage you as we begin this series in Judges to uh, desire to really soak up this book. Uh, this book is... Um, really amazing. It, it, it's got um, a lot of difficult um, stories and moments in Israel's history in it. And I think often we can come to the Old Testament and think it's just a bunch of stories that happened a really long time ago and, and are, are for the history buffs, but don't really mean much to us. And what I think we're really hoping is that as we go through this book in the Old Testament, that we will see that actually the Old Testament is full of richness for us today. Because the Old Testament uh, reveals to us the character of God, how he acted and spoke throughout history with his people. And so we learn more of who God is. We learn more of who we are as humanity to see how we have acted uh, in history as a, as a people. But most importantly, what we see in the book of Judges is that um, it points towards Jesus. This is a book that uh, points towards an ultimate savior, an ultimate deliverer in Jesus. And so can I encourage you over the next nine weeks to soak yourself into this book. Uh, read it through many times over the ni next nine weeks. There's, there's 21 chapters in Judges. And so if you read one chapter a day from Monday to, to Friday, you'll get through it in just over a month. And so you'll probably be able to get through it a couple times in this series. So... Um, Take it on board. I'm, I'm real keen for us to dig deep into this book. We've got a resource that'll be coming out a little bit later, maybe when we meet back physically, but that's going to be another uh, resource that's going to help us to really grasp um, what's happening in Judges. So let's begin by looking uh, at a little bit of what Judges is about. What is the book that we're about to spend nine weeks in? Uh, Judges is a book that um, looks at a, a, a period of time within Israel's history where there was no king. Israel had just lost their, one of their great leaders called Joshua. And so what we see in the book of Judges is a nation that slowly slips away from God. The structure of this book is basically a spiral, but the spiral isn't going up. The spiral is going down and down and down. The book of Judges is, is probably one of the lowest points in Israel's history. Um, it, it, it can be a, a, a pretty depressing book to read as we see failure after failure, when we see a depravity after depravity, evil after evil. And, and, and really what characterizes Judges is this, there's a cycle, and Shane's going to look at it a bit more next week. But it's a cycle uh, of uh, the nation of Israel rejecting God and then God and his faithfulness has mercy and patience on Israel as he delivers them. And then the cycle begins again as the people reject. But, but one of the key verses, and, and you'll hear it throughout the book, and it was in that opening video, is this. In those days, Israel had no king. 
and everyone did as they saw fit. And so really this book is showing what life looks like when this is the reality. There's no king and everyone just does whatever they want. And so what Judges does is it follows a a bunch of key characters uh, in the Bible. And they're called Judges. That's why the book's called Judges. Uh, And these are are leaders that as the nation uh, fall, as they reject God and God allows them to be taken over by other nations, they cry out to God, help us. And what God does, he sends uh, a judge to free them, to deliver them. Now, when we talk of a judge, we're not talking of, you know, in a courtroom with a wig and a, and a, and a hammer, one of those kind of judges. Um, but a judge back then was like a tribal leader, uh, a savior or, or a deliverer. And so God would send these uh, tribal leaders to deliver his people. And so uh, Samson was a judge and Deborah was a judge um, and Gideon was a judge. And some of these different characters and, and they're littered throughout the book of Judges. But in a nutshell, Judges Judges is about God's faithfulness to a kingless and chaotic people. And so I think it's a really fitting title that we have, Kingless and Chaotic. But let's have a a quick look at where Judges fits in the Bible, in the story of the Bible. I've got a timeline that's going to pop up for you, and hopefully this is helpful because Judges uh, has a lot to do with a guy called Abraham. And so you might remember back in Genesis, there's a a guy called Abraham and God comes to him and he makes some promises to Abraham. And one of the promises is that I'm going to give to you a land, a a land flown of milk and honey called Canaan. And then over many years, uh, Abraham has uh, children, Isaac, and then children uh, continuing all the way through until his offspring become a nation. And, and, and that nation ends up in, in a place called Egypt and they get into slavery once Joseph has died. And so uh, the nation is still waiting for this promise of this, this land of peace to be theirs. Israel are in slavery in Egypt for 400 years until uh, Moses is called by God to come and deliver the people out of Egypt. You might, might remember that as he parts the Red Sea and the nation uh, leave slavery from Egypt. Moses then leads the people uh, and and they wander in the wilderness for 40 years because of their disobedience. And then eventually they arrive to the edge of this promised land called Canaan. And Moses dies and doesn't get to go in. And his successor, Joshua, takes the nation into the land of Canaan. And that's in the book of Joshua. And that's where we have Jericho. You might remember that, where the nation walk around the city walls and the walls fall down and they take Jericho. But in Joshua, we see where, how Israel take the promised land. They get in, they break through. That's Joshua. And then here in Judges, what we see is that uh, the nation has taken the land, they've, they've got into the land, but they don't actually possess the land. It's not actually theirs yet because there's other nations around. And so as we begin Judges, what we see is the process of the nation of Israel taking the land and making it theirs. So Joshua was getting into the land. Judges is getting the other nations out of the land. And so what happens at, at the end of jo- uh, Joshua 
is that the nation comes together and they look at the land that God has given them and they divide it up into 12, uh, for the 12 different tribes. And then as we begin judges, all of those tribes go out to take their allotted area of land. And that's the context in which we see judges. And what's really amazing about this book is that as we read this book, we are we are seeing the fulfillment of God's promise, uh, partial fulfillment to his promise to his people. As they finally, after a promise that was given to Abraham many, many years before, finally the nation come into this promised land to take it for, uh, for their own. And so in, in chapter 1, verse 1, we see Judges uh, begins with a moment uh, not so much of crisis, but a, a critical moment in their history. Uh, have a look at uh, verse 1 in chapter 1 in Judges. It says, After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, Who of us is to go up first to fight against the Canaanites? Israel have lost their leader, Joshua, who brought them into the land and saw so many victories won for the nation. And Joshua didn't leave a successor behind him. And so this is really a, a, a moment of, um, of two options really for the nation. Are they going to continue to uh, follow God and be obedient or are they going to start to stray? And I think we can probably understand a little bit about how the nation of Israel are feeling, right? When a group of people lose a really significant leader in their life, it is um, a really impactful moment for them. When Nelson Mandela died or maybe Abraham Lincoln, great men who achieved so much, the nation sort of stands still in, in, in sort of remembrance, but also being struck by the absence of this person now. And, and I think that's a little bit of how, uh, how Israel were feeling as Joshua died. You see, it's really important to note that God uses the death of his key leaders, whether it's Moses or Joseph or Joshua, to show that God's kingdom does not collapse when one of his key leaders die. The, the nation of Israel is not held together by this one uh, human leader. Rather, this is God's kingdom. And he appoints uh, key leaders when he chooses. But when they die, the kingdom of God continues because Israel still have their God. They still have their ultimate king in Yahweh, in their God. And so luckily for judges, uh, Joshua leaves the nation in actually a really good condition. They're actually in a really good state as a nation to uh, move forward following God. And so what's important for us is that we, as we come to the book of Judges, we need to kind of understand a little bit about the end of Joshua. Because we have to read everything in context and to fully, to fully understand what's happening here in Judges, we need to understand what has happened at the end of Joshua. So grab your Bibles with me. We're going to flick uh, just a couple of pages back to Joshua chapter 24. You see, before Joshua dies, he, uh, he, he um, sees the nation make a, renew their covenant with God to um, make these promises to God that they will follow him. And so uh, what, what God says to the nation is, is kind of an ultimatum. He goes, I'm giving you a choice. Will you follow me? And have a look with me. Uh, he, he begins, God begins by showing the nation what he has done for them. In chapter 24, verses 8, God says, 
I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived east of the Jordan. They fought against you, but I gave them into your hands. I destroyed them before you and you took possession of the land. Then in verse 9 at the end, as, as uh, God talks about the Moabites, he says, And again, I delivered you out of the Moabites' hand. In verse 11, Then you crossed the Jordan and you came to Jericho, and the citizens of Jericho fought against you, as did also the Amorites and the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. But I gave them into your hand. Jump to verse 13. God says, so I gave you a land which you did not toil and cities you did not build. And you live in them and eat the vineyards and the olive groves that you did not plant. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods of your ancestors, worship uh, throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And so what God says is, he says, look at my faithfulness to you as a people. Look how I delivered you out of Egypt, how I've provided you with this amazing land that you didn't work for, you didn't plant any of the vineyards, and to be honest, you didn't even win the battles. I did that for you. Look at how faithful I have been to you. Therefore, decide today, will you follow me, the one true God, Yahweh, or will you follow the other nation's gods as you did in Egypt? And have a look with me in verse 16, what the nation replies. Verse 16, then the people answered, far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord, our God himself, who brought us and our parents up out of Egypt from the land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled and the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. So the Israelites respond, we will serve the Lord. We won't live with or intermarry with the Canaanite people. We will stay loyal and faithful to our God. And so as we come to chapter 1, verse 1 in, Joshua, uh, in Judges, sorry, Joshua dies and the nation inquires of the Lord, what should we do next? And this is a really good start for the nation. They are asking the Lord, what should we do next? Who should go first to fight the Canaanites? They don't kind of just decide amongst themselves and go, that's, that's good logic, let's go. No, they remember who's in charge. They remember who has provided for them all of this time. And God responds in verse 2 by saying, Judah. The tribe of Judah is to go first. And so the rest of chapter 1 uh, looks at the story of the tribes of Israel taking the nation. And so what Judah does, the, the tribe of Judah, is they turn to the tribe of the Simeonites and they say, hey, can you come and help us take our area of land and kick all of those Canaanites out? And then once we've done that, then we'll come with you to your area and we'll help you take that area as well. And the Simeonites go, yep, we're happy to come and do that. And this is good, right? The tribes are working to the, uh, together. There is unity. And the Lord brings both of these tribes victory. Uh, they first start, you, you should see a map uh, up on the screen, Judah and the Simeonites. They first go up to a place called Bezek, 
Uh, and they take that place. They capture this really bad dude called Adonai Bezek. They chop off his fingers, chop off his toes, uh, and he eventually dies in Jerusalem. And we're going to come back to this guy. But after they've taken Bezek, they then go down to the south, to the hill country, to the Negev, and they uh, have success and victory as they take hold of their allotted area of Canaan. And the reason for this is in verse 2 at the end. The Lord says, I have given the land into your hands. God has predetermined you will have victory. I have given this land to you. I will fight on your behalf. So it all starts going really well. Let's see if you can notice where things maybe start to go downhill. You see, after the first two tribes have success down in the south, the other 10 tribes decide it's time to go. And so they head up to the north. And uh, here, from verse 21 onwards, we start to see an account of how the other tribes do. It begins with the Benjamites. Uh, And what we see is that they don't drive out the Jebusites who live in Jerusalem. Next are the tribes of Joseph. And uh, they, when they come to Bethel, make a deal with a man coming out of the city of Bethel. And they make a deal with him and say, you'll be safe if you can show us how to sneak into Bethel to take control of the city. And so he shows them and they spare him. And then they take, uh, they take Bethel for themselves. Then we come to the tribe of Manasseh. And again, Manasseh doesn't drive out the Canaanites in the land. But Manasseh is a little bit different. So you have a look with me in verse uh, 27, at the end of verse 27. Uh, for the, it says the Canaanites were determined to live in the land. And then in verse 28, when Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labor, but never drove them out completely. You see, Manasseh is a little bit different because uh, what we hear is not just that he wasn't able to uh, kick the Canaanites out of the land, but eventually once they got a little bit stronger, they actually forced the Canaanites into slave labor. And so this idea of slave labor begins because the next tribe, Ephraim, uh, do the same. They didn't drive out the nation. Then Zebulun doesn't drive out the nation, but also put the Canaanites into forced labor. Asher and Nephtali don't drive out the nation, but put them into forced labor. And then it gets worse. In verse 34, the Amorites begin to take land back from the uh, the, the tribe of Dan. And so Israel start to actually lose ground as they are overpowered. And then at the end of verse 35, eventually the nations start getting a bit stronger again. And eventually they're able to push the Amorites back. And the Amorites as well are forced into slave labor. So the story goes like this. It'll be on your screen. It begins with victory for the first uh, few verses. It then is an initial victory. It then becomes an incomplete conquest. And at the end, with the tribe of Dan, the conquest is in reverse. They start actually losing ground. And what's really important to note here in chapter one is where the presence of God is in this entire account. You see, in the first half of the chapter, God is with Judah and uh, the Simeonites in verses one and two and 19 and 22. God is with his people. But in the second half of chapter one, God is nowhere to be seen. In fact, God doesn't feature at all on the page in the second half of chapter one. And we're going to see why in just a little bit. The end of chapter one 
Israel are feeling pretty good, right? They've had some victories. They've, they've, had, they've got some of the land and what they've done is put the Canaanites into slave labor. And so sometimes they started off weak against the nations, but once they gained about a, a bit of strength, they made them their slaves. So they now have land and they have slaves. And then come with me to the next five verses at the start of chapter two. And we see who comes back onto the scene. Verses 1 and chapter 2. The angel of the Lord went up to Gilgal at Bochum and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and I led you into the land I swore to give to your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? And I have also said, I will not drive them out before you. They will become traps for you and their gods will become snares for you. God has been silent for 14 verses. He hasn't been on the scene and now he meets with his people and he finally speaks and what he brings is a word of judgment. He says, I have kept my promise but you have broken yours. You did not drive out the nations in Canaan. You have disobeyed. And this is the big deal of this entire first section of Judges. And there's a couple of issues here that I think we need to have a look at uh, as we think about Israel's disobedience and not driving out the nation, uh, the, the nation of the Canaanites. You see, sometimes we can struggle with this section of Scripture because God is very clear to the Israelites that they are to destroy the Canaanites. There's to be no mercy, no co-living, but they are to drive them out completely. No Canaanite is to remain in the land. And so the question we have to ask is, is that too harsh, God? I mean, it can sort of feel like God is kicking the Canaanites out of the land so that his people can come to live into it. Uh, how does that work, right? The Canaanites were there first, right? I think the important thing for us to remember as we think about this is that the Canaanites are not innocent. And I'm not going to go into tons of detail, and you can check this out later, but in Deuteronomy 9, God makes it very, very clear to the nation that the reason that uh, the Canaanites are to be driven out of the land is because of their wickedness, the Canaanites' wickedness. Not because the nation of Israel is so great and amazing and they deserve the land. It's because the Canaanite people were a wicked people. And so God says it's on account of their wickedness that you are to drive them out of the land. In Deuteronomy 18, we hear that the Canaanites were involved in child sacrifice, uh, witchcraft, sorcery. Um, if you want to in your own time, because it's probably not appropriate for live stream, but in Leviticus 18, you go and have a look and you look at the moral and the sexual depravity of this nation. You see, the Israelites coming into the promised land wasn't just a blessing for Israel, but it was actually God enacting his judgment on the nation of the Canaanites. For Israel, God's blessing. For the Canaanites, God's judgment. And it's the same action happening. And the really interesting thing is, remember that really bad dude who got all his fingers and his toes cut off? Adonai Bezek. If you have a look at verse 7, when his fingers and his toes get cut off, he says this, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes are cut off have picked up scraps under my table. Now God has paid me back what I did to them. 
You see, Adonai Bezek knew that this was God's judgment. And more than that, he knew that he deserved it. It's important for us to realize God is not calling for the destruction of a peaceful, beautiful, amazing nation that are innocent. No, what God is saying to this immoral, child-sacrificing people is that your time is up. This is God's judgment on a wicked, evil nation. And this was decided long before the Israelites actually got there. And so the question I think that comes to us is, why did they need to drive them out? Why did they need to be destroyed? Because it seems like the Israelites have come up with a pretty good option on their own, right? The, the Canaanites are being punished because they're in slavery, but then they're also benefiting us, benefiting us, God's chosen people, right? The Israelites. But we need to understand what's going on behind the scenes here. Is he sure there was a, a pragmatic reason uh, for driving out the nations from a military point of view, right? You wanted to drive out the Canaanites so that they didn't come back to bite you in the bum. There was pragmatic reasons, but that was not God's driving force. God's reasoning for requiring the Canaanites to be destroyed was not practical. It was not for military reasons, but it was for spiritual reasons. Let me read you a quote. The remaining Canaanites would not be so much a military threat as a spiritual cancer. You see, the angel of the Lord in, in chapter 2 makes it very clear. God said that all of the Canaanites were to be driven out and you have not obeyed. The people were called to drive the nation out so that they would stay loyal and faithful to their God. Because the angel of the Lord said, if you don't, then you will worship their gods. It will be too enticing for you. Your eyes will stray over there and you will reject and ignore me and leave me. The Israelites had pragmatic success, right? On a practical sense, they had slaves, but it was spiritual failure. You see, the Israelites chose the option that worked best for them, right? Rather than obeying what God had said. And so in one sense, we can understand Israel's compromise, right? When you're a nation that's coming into a, a, a new land, slaves can sound good, right? They can work for me, hard labor. They can build stuff, right? This will be great. We can achieve so much, and Israel compromised, and at the beginning, there's no uh, punishment straight away. They don't see any immediate repercussion for what they have done. But what they don't realize is that the impact of their failure would last generation after generation. I'm going to read you another quote. What began as toleration became apostasy. That means abandoning the faith. What seemed so reasonable proved lethal. Living with Canaanites led to worshipping with Canaanites. You see, their compromise didn't just affect their generation, but had a ripple effect for years and decades and, and really centuries beyond. Because from this moment on, Israel continually struggle with worshipping foreign gods because they intermarry with the other nations. 
because they never obeyed God and drove out the, the, uh, the nations of the Canaanites. They compromised because of this. They struggle with this for the rest of their foreseeable future. It affected Solomon so much that God split the kingdom into the north and the south. It got so bad that the nations were sent into exile because they had been unfaithful to Yahweh their God. Because they, and it began all the way in Judges as they compromised just a little bit. One little decision that seemed practical at the time. It seemed easier. It seemed more comfortable, right? Had enormous effects. And so let me ask you, have you felt that way yourself with sin? Because I think this is a huge warning for us today. Sin is a slippery slope, right? It begins with entertaining a thought in your mind and a desire for too long. James chapter 1 puts it incredibly well. Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Pragmatism must never come at the expense of obedience, right? It works, cannot be an excuse. We can so easily slip into getting comfortable with sin. Taking the easy option with sin. I'll just dip my toe in the water, but we need to remember this morning that God is holy, that He is pure that he is our supreme ruler and there is no sin in him. And we need to remember this morning that God is fierce about sin. His holiness is great and his wrath is real. And so we need to this morning examine ourselves. And it's hard, right? I feel it the most when I'm tired and when I'm stressed, the, the temptation to compromise. And I want to just finish by pulling out one really quick theme as we close. And that is around God's faithfulness and his patience. You see, God is exceedingly patient with the nation of Israel. They deserve to be left to their own devices, but he continues to come back to them time and time and time again. And if you're a Christian, then you can probably attest to the fact that that is true in your own life. You see, Christians aren't a group of people that are, are perfect. You know, we don't become a Christian and then God just changes our, uh, our, our, our uh, sinful desires like that. And all of a sudden we're just these righteous, perfect people. We struggle with sin every single day. We're not saved because we're amazing. We're saved because God has been so incredibly generous towards us. God's patience is incredible. And it's important for us to remember that God is just as patient today as he was back in the book of Judges. And the only difference is the idea of punishment. You see, the, judge, uh, the Israelites in the, judges, in, the, in the time of the Judges experienced God's judgment, right? God said, I'm going I'm to leave these nations among you. They are going to be a stumbling stone for you. I'm not going to take them out anymore, but you will live with the effects of your decision. Now, you're still my people. I've still made a covenant with you. I'm not fully abandoning you, but you will experience this punishment. But you see, it's different for us today because we don't experience the immediate punishment of God. We don't see God's punishment on the sin of the world now because it is delayed. 
And so what happens is that patience, God's patience, can be misinterpreted sometimes as God doesn't care about sin because nothing happens. I haven't seen God punish sin, so he mustn't care. And often that's why we struggle with God's commands here, right, to destroy the Canaanites. It's why we struggle with Uzziah when he touches the ark and God kills him immediately or the annihilation of Sodom and Gomorrah. But I want you to have a look at a, um, a quote on the screen. And just let this quote wash over you for a second about God's patience. God is slow, so sorry. God is so slow to anger that when his anger does erupt, we are shocked and offended by it. We forget rather quickly that God's patience is designed to lead us to repentance, to give us time to be redeemed. Instead of taking advantage of his patience by coming humbly to him in forgiveness, we use this grace as an opportunity to become even more bold in sin. And then look at this last line. The supreme folly is that we think we will get away with our revolt. You see, Israel's disobedience to God had no immediate effect, right? That's why the compromise was okay. We've got slaves. God hasn't stopped us. It must be all good. And so, what, and so they thought that God didn't care about it because of his patience. And then all of a sudden, they came face to face with God's judgment, his punishment. And this is the same for us today. You see, we think that God doesn't care about sin because we don't see his judgment and his punishment now. Or we think that God is powerless to do anything about sin. And so what happens is we go even a step further and we say, God's judgment and punishment doesn't even exist. There is no hell. There is no wrath. And what we don't understand is that the current lack of punishment by God is actually his unfathomable patience. I'm going to say that again. The current lack of God's punishment on sin is actually his incredible patience. You see, the only reason that people who live rejecting God can take another breath from their mouth is because God is patient. He is waiting for more people to come to himself. Romans 2 verse 5, it's on the screen, says this, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God's lack of acting is not meant to demonstrate that God is chilled out about sin. Hey, it's all good. You know, don't worry. It's actually his restraining of his wrath. But he will only restrain it for so long. And so I'm going to finish here by saying, if you this morning don't trust Jesus, please hear me when I say God's restraining of his wrath, his patience, it does have an expiry date. There will be a point where God says, patience no more. Now comes judgment and now comes the punishment and the Bible calls that hell. And let me tell you, no one talks more about hell in the Bible than Jesus does. It's why he came to earth, to save us from God's wrath for sin. 
And so if you don't trust Jesus yet, if you're maybe still working things out, we are so glad that you are linked in this morning and here with us. Please chat to someone. We would love to talk to you. Because the question that you need to ask is, who is Jesus and what am I going to do with him? Am I going to reject him or am I going to repent and believe? And if you're a Christian this morning, don't fall for the lie that God doesn't care about sin. It is so easy for our eyes to be led in this way and to be led in that way. It's one of the reasons why God gives us the church. And, and it's one of the reasons why we have it on, on our vision, right? Love God, love the church, love the lost. God gave us each other so that we could make it to our last breath, loving and trusting Jesus so that we can keep one another accountable. It's at the core of what we're about, doing life together. And so can I say, if you feel like you're not fully involved in church yet, if you're not in a connect group, can you get involved? It will be such a blessing to your life and to your Christian walk. Chat to the office or you can chat to Frank directly, but church, God created it so that we could keep each other accountable, so that we could walk life together one step at a time. We're going to spend some time now uh, in, our, in our small groups um, remembering the Lord's Supper. And you know, God gave us the church to help us remember the importance of Jesus, but He also gave us the Lord's Supper a symbol of his sacrifice for us. And what the Lord's Supper reminds us is it reminds us of our weakness, our inability to pay for our own sin. And it reminds us what it took to actually pay for our sin, the death of the Son of God. And so I want to just do something a little bit different as we finish. I would love everyone to just spend a little bit of time reflecting on your own sin before we take part in the Lord's Supper. Paul makes it clear that, that we shouldn't take part in the Lord's Supper if we have unrepentant sin in our life. It's almost hypocritical. And so before we take the Lord's Supper, we're going to have a time of silent confession where you confess to God directly the sins over the last week, maybe the last couple of days, maybe even this morning. We're going to do that for um, silently just for a couple of moments. And I'm going to pray on our behalf and then we're going to move straight into Lord's Supper and you can take it in your homes. So won't you just take a moment now, reflect on your heart, reflect on your life, confess your sin to God. Thank Him for forgiveness. Why don't we do that now? Heavenly Father, you are our perfect, holy, fair, just God. We thank you that there is no sin in you, that you are perfect. And Lord, for everything that has just been confessed now, we say that we are so sorry that we have tried to be the gods of our own lives.
We ask your forgiveness for all that has been confessed. And Father, we thank you so much that you don't give us what we deserve, but that you offer us forgiveness. We thank you for your patience. Father, we long that this world would know you, the love that you have for them, the eternal life that is on offer. And we pray that you would use us to share this great news. Father, as we take time now to remember your son's death for us, would we have hearts of humility, hearts of thankfulness, but hearts of confidence, knowing that we have been forgiven because Jesus died and because he rose again. There was nothing too great in our sin that he couldn't pay for. And so we thank you so much for your incredible love for us. Help us, I pray, to keep our eyes fixed on your son. In Jesus' name, amen.